and gentlemen, Dr. Soya. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Hi, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, some faces I actually know here, a few I don't. Uh, I'm a wanderer. I talk fast. And uh, the faster I talk, when I talk really fast, you know I'm trying to get away with something. Uh, so um, my, my goal here today and my intent here was to talk a little bit about changes in work and essentially the, where work is going. Um, so I can do, uh, and, I, and I'm prepared to, more to respond to your questions than to derive this whole agenda. So well, I'll see what we get. I do want to ask two questions before we get going. How many of you right now have a cell phone with you? Hands, please, hands. So if I would ask this in my, under, my introductory undergraduate class, if I would ask that same question, people would look at me kind of idiotically. They all would have one. And I, then I'd say, how many of you have some sort of personal digital assistant? How many of you have some sort of PDA or some sort of personal management thing? One. Most students would look at me oddly again because their phone and their PDA are combined or they have both. One last question. How many of you have a laptop with you? Two. And one of them is a student. Right? Again, most students would look at me kind of oddly. Right? They already have one. If I were to go to most workplaces nowadays, most workplaces, and ask those questions, I would get a, a resoundingly large number of people saying they have those things. Right? And the question is why? Why do they have them? Well, so let me, and, and I'm going to try to get to that. Let me, let me talk a little bit and say there's three things I want to get out on the, on the table before we get going. Most of what I'm going to talk about is about where work is going, trends in what we talk about work and where work is happening. And to do that, I've got I to do a little bit of economic history. I've got to do a little bit of urban planning. And I've got to do a little bit of uh, modern organizational strategy. So here, and I'm going to do those all in about two minutes. Here we go. Right? Besmirching the intense and incredibly elegant work that a number of my colleagues all around the university are doing by boiling it down to a couple of little pithy statements. We no longer live where we work. When we were farmers, we did. Even when we were in manufacturing, we did, because manufacturing is hard work, and you tend to want to live close because you're tired when you're done. But nowadays, we don't tend to live near where we work. Right? Most of us have picked a small town, state college, where we can live. But how many of you have a more than 20-minute commute to get here? Anybody? The average commute time in the United States, the average commute time is 35 minutes, one way. For people under 30, right? The people entering the workforce, 45 minutes, because they can't afford to live closer. Right? Do the multiplication, you figure out you spend a lot of time in the car. People don't live near where they work. How many of you live near your family? That is your closest family, your first degree of separation family. How many of you live close to your family? Children, parents. Right? In the last 50 years, most of us have moved away from our family. Right? Um, my closest sibling, and I'm actually proud of this, shows you. <laughs> Maybe that's a statement of my, my life. My closest sibling is only a time zone away, down from two, right? which is uh, getting uncomfortably close by. Um, and my family lives in deep, my mother and her husband live in DC, and, um, and that's only a four hour drive. But they have to call, right? I think the whole concept of where you live and where you work and um, who you live and work with is, is changed quite a bit. So the, the, the point I'm making is that urban planning, we now live farther away from where we work, and we live further away from who we, who we grew up with and uh, know as our family. All right. so, uh, second point I'll make is there's this thing called globalization. You heard this? Which is, the, it's essentially an economic argument that says, pursue the lowest cost producer. Right? So it used to be that the lowest cost producer was tremendously bound by distance. 
Because if you had to make, say, cars, it took a long time and a lot of money to move a car around. But if you make little pieces of cars, you can move them around faster. So globalization is a pressure that moves work away from where you are. So you may have actually moved close to work, and work may have left you. It may have moved. And so either you choose to move or you choose other arrangements. So this concept of globalization, which is actually a concept of a, a, the, the world is a market. So there's this concept of globalization. There's this concept of you no longer work where you live. And you no longer live with who you grew up with. Right? It's a dispersion problem. Third thing is, uh, most companies uh, that sell technology are in, in the business of making money. There's a few that seem to lose money fairly steadily. Uh, but most of them try to make money, oddly enough. And so they look at opportunities that people provide to them. One of the opportunities is we're very mobile. Right? If you're going to spend 45 minutes, if the average 30-year-old, uh, under 30-year-old is spending 45 minutes each way each day in a car, right, that's a good opportunity. If uh, you have uh, relocation all the time, how many of you have been on an airplane in the past month? Airplane? Airplane? You know, surprisingly enough, if you're over 40, you're on an airplane a lot less than I thought you would be. And if you're under 30, you're on an airplane a lot more than I thought you would be. Um, I'm not sure why that is. I, again, I'm not a global tourism specialist. Uh, but the point of that is that people move around, and the, and the younger generation move around even more. They're used to moving around all the time. Right? Um, when I first got, well, I got a degree at University of Rhode Island, and I'm walking across the quad. You know, Rhode Island's a small state, right? I remember walking behind two kids, um, and they're are you going to go home this weekend? No, it's too far. I'm thinking, from the University of Rhode Island, no place in Rhode Island is more than 25 minutes away. No, it's too far. Now I, I have a colleague who works uh, in Boston but lives in Connecticut. He drives an hour and a half each way, four days a week. And he doesn't think anything. He goes, yeah, I'm on the phone the whole time. I got my computer in the passenger seat. So, uh, Chip, how fast do you drive? I don't know. I'm on the outside lane. Different world. And the, so let me bring it down to what does that mean for these vendors? Well, they're looking around at the fact that it's not that the world decided we should become mobile. It's not we got together and voted on this. Right? I, don't know, I don't remember any plenary when I was growing up. It's that the world has, has slowly become mobile. People have made choices about where to live and where to work based on what's available to them, and they're distributed. Companies are struggling with this, and the vendors are very helpful because they see an opportunity. Um, and so one of the arguments that I'll, I'm going to make here is that much of what's driving the increasing mobility or the wireless work activity is not the technology itself, but the distribution of our people in, in the world. Right? That this is not a technology issue. This is a social issue that the technology followed into. Does that make sense? And so if you look at the, I, I use the generational contrast, if you look at the people in, the, in their 40s that grew up, and sometime between high school and college, computers entered their world, we think of it as, as a production device. It's something that we do for work. And we may have a couple other things we do at home with them, I checked the sports scores, you know, a couple other things. But it's generally a production technology for me. Does that make sense? Um, for, those of us, for those of us in this room that are under 30, it, you've probably always had some access to computing. And so you've never thought of it as production. It's, you grew up with it as a, something you took pictures with and loaded stuff on. And for those 55, it entered into your career perhaps right toward the end of it. And... Um, or late in it currently, and it's something that you've had to figure out how to rearrange your life around. Two examples of this. 
If I have an email with my mother, the email my mother sends me looks exactly like a letter. Doesn't, it has a start, an introduction, a salutation, an introduction, and it has the body of the letter and it closes. Right? If I have a phone call with her, it sounds a lot like a letter. Right? Have you had that conversation with, say, an 18-year-old? They have a much different way of an interacting. They do not think of the email as a replication of a letter. Right? In fact, I think the latest thing is that most college students don't like email. It takes too long. So I'm already passe. I've, it came right by me, um, which is good. So, so we have, and the slight point I'm making here is we have a slightly different way of interacting also. We have a, dis, we have a distribution of society. We have a distribution of work. And we have a slightly different way of interacting. How many of you are comfortable on a phone right now? You OK to have a long phone call? My, my family, um, for whatever reason, they didn't like long-distance phone calls. I think they were because they were expensive. You remember the little um, chess timers? You know what I'm talking about? With a <laughs> you know the chess timer? I would get on the phone, and they ding. So it would be picking at me the whole time as a kid. I remember that very, very, right? Nowadays, uh, it's a prepackaged minutes thing because, and the, uh, because it's easier to sell minutes than it is to, uh, to sell packages than to keep track of minutes. The point here is that the way we've thought about communicating has changed from keeping track of minutes to keeping track of hours, how many hours of com communication. So the larger point is we've distributed our society, distributed our work, and we've built all sorts of systems that help us do that. The systems I've talked about, the two simplest systems I talk about is the email system, which is really just based on the internet, and the phone system. Right? So the concept of the phone is very important in the distributed work because we first think about how we connect with others through this thing called the phone. Right? Uh, how many of you, are, most of you are pretty good at the phone? Let me talk a little bit about what, what can't you learn from listening on a phone call? No picture. So you don't know if they're happy or sad. And, right? You, you have to, can you infer some of the things? Voice you, tone. Yeah. Voice tone. Do you always get a sense that they're not quite paying attention to you? I get this a lot from, you know. <coughs> right? That's the thing about a phone is you don't have to pay attention. Uh-huh. 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 Right? I get that a lot. I, I'm trying to call my kids when I'm away. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Are you watching TV? Uh-huh. <laughs> you going to talk to me anymore? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, should I come back tomorrow? Huh? Um, point is, the f we've learned to interact in the world using the phone. So the first things we think about, excuse me, my tail fell off. The first things we think about when we start to talk about the distribution of work is to telecommute, to talk through the phone. And in fact, that's the sign outside. And the very first way you think about distributing work is that I do my work in one place and you do your work in another place and we'll talk by the phone about how it goes. It's a very simple view. Uh, how many of you have heard the story, I'm staying home today to work, and if there's any problems, call me? Mm -hmm. right. um, maybe they're more advanced to say, I'm not going to go home to work, because if I stay, stay, stay at home, I see all those dishes that need to be done, and the, you know, the, so I'll go someplace else and work. All right. That assumes two things about the distribution of work. One is you, can, you have what you need in your head, and you can just work on it, or you can bring it with you. Does that make sense? So what happens if there are resources that you need things that you need from your office. What do you do? What's the average person do if they need something at their office and they're not there? Well, they don't do anything. Or they, bring, or they drive over there. Or they bring a whole bunch of stuff home in their briefcase on the off chance that they might work on it. How many of you have done that? 
right? So uh, there's a cool little study that's done by a, a, a group of people at the Santa Fe Institute where they looked at executives and how much stuff they brought home. And so they'd ask them, what's in your, back, what's in your briefcase? Da, 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 da. What did you touch when you brought it home? Less than 1%, right? So think about tonight as you're walking home or wherever you're carrying something around. How much of what you're carrying is what you're going to work on and how much of it is just packaged guilt? <laughs> right? So the second step in, in this di distribution is one, I thought, you know, I'll just stay home and work today. I don't want to have to take the drive in. I get interrupted a lot at work. I'll just stay home and work. Second thing is, oh shoot, I need access to stuff. So I can start bringing stuff home. All right? Well, maybe I'm really smart and say, I don't bring it home on paper. I'll make it on my computer. And I'll bring it home digitally. All right? And that works pretty well for me. I'm a professor. I can do that. What happens if I'm a, say, a mechanic? Oh, shoot. Well, mechanics, slightly different world. So we're going to have to start talking a little bit more about the difference between knowledge-based work and, and product-based work. Can I make that distinction? So a mechanic is a product-based worker. They have to touch something. They have to work on a product, right? I'm not making the distinction between information work and non-information work because to do a mechanic's job, they have to have a lot of information. And in fact, if you go down to the Exxon down here, that uh, one that's, is it an Exxon on the way down College Heights? Right? If you drive out of town today and stop and ask them and say, could you work on my car? They'll say, what kind of car? And they tell you, and they'll go and they have a computer and they'll look up the diagnostics in the computer. They actually, uh, we could talk a little bit about what the car can tell the mechanic now, uh, which is kind of frightening, um, how much the car knows about what you do. Quick side light. They have a thing in there that tells, they can tell the, kind of do it. The quick side light, they have a thing in the car that can tell the, the mechanic how fast you drive the car. It actually has an accelerometer in there. So you can say, well, I'm coming in here because my brakes are worn down and it's, they shouldn't be. And the guy can say, well, if you drive 130 miles an hour all the time, right? So I'm not going to, it's kind of, yeah, kind of frightening. But the, the point of the mechanic is, is tied to that piece of material right now. He has to be there at the car even if he accesses that information. But he has tied to a piece of a product. As, so we begin to separate who can work virtually away from work, people who don't have to have something tied to them. Right? That separates out, for the first time, this distribution of work between those who can be someplace uh, and do their work and those who have to be at a place and do their work. The very first time we've really had to grapple with this. Yeah? You're missing click and clack. Yeah, but they talk about it. Right. <laughs> That's a very good point. And, and you know, one of those guys is a marketing professor at Boston University. And I sat in his class and had no idea who he was. I just thought he was a, it was an awful class. And um, not because of him. It was, uh, it, but after I took the class, they're like, you, you didn't know that? No, I had no idea. I listened to him on Saturday, and all the, you know, he was much more interesting on Saturday. Um, yeah, but they talk about it, so they can be anywhere they want, because they're not actually having to do it. But his brother, the marketing professor's brother, that's Click, I think, um, <laughs> he actually runs a high-end shop up in Burlington, Massachusetts. And so, you know, he's, he's the one that always answers the question, because he's actually been doing it. The other guy makes fun of him. Um, Check that out. The, the, the point I'm making here is that the separation between what you do and where you do it becomes more and more important as you can separate the product piece from it from the digital or the service or the knowledge piece. That's a separation. But I wanted to get to it slightly differently by pointing out that until we have to make a decision about where to work, it doesn't matter. Now we start to separate out where you get to do the work. First thing is I can call in and if I need it. Second thing is I can bring it with me. The third thing is, what happens if I don't have to bring it with me? I can store it someplace, and I always get to it. What happens if I just store it someplace, I can always get to it? Uh, how many of you used the library recently, the Penn State Library? How many of you used LIAS, the online 
you no longer have to go to the library to get most of the stuff. Isn't that interesting? So the reason the university's co-located faculty was access to a scarce material, the library. When you no longer have to be near the library to get to the library, it allows you to be different places because now the material access is, is available anywhere. All right. So that leads me to the last point. Once you know that you can get away from work and, and get to your access to your materials anywhere you want, there's only really one other question, which is where should you work? And maybe when should you work? So suddenly when you begin to have uh, the ability to relocate to where you're comfortable to do your production work and you can get access to your materials, where you work becomes almost unimportant. It all defined by, if I can use the, ter the technical term, access, right? So you know, the, you know what a California car is? You want to, well, one if you're an automotive engineer, a California car is one that has the proper emissions that can be sold in California. And if you're a techno person like me, a California car is the one that's sold with the laptop platform on the passenger seat. Right? You can actually go to the National Rental Car and say, I want, I want my laptop platform, and they have it so they can buy it. And, and there's a very funny joke about the, um, or a story about the, uh, Guy that calls into a call radio and goes, you know, some lady just drove by me on the 101, that's the big road down, and she was putting on her makeup, reading the newspaper, and, and, and talking on the cell phone. That upset me so much that I spilled my coffee on my laptop. <laughs> so, yeah, so the point is you can work anywhere you want now, right? We have a privilege. Yeah. Uh, my question, how, how productive you can be, though. I mean... Ah, productivity. So there's three parts that I was waiting for this question, because I, I actually try to avoid the production versus socialization question. All right, so in a factory, in a traditional factory model of an organization, the reason that you came to work was because that was where the productive resource was, that was where the material equipment was. And we could measure your production, couldn't we? That was what uh, Frederick Taylor was really big on, remember him? Um, actually, he was the latest in the long group of people that looked at productive measures of, of work based on the access to scarce or limited resources, like production machinery, right? Um, what did those people do? Um, what, what was one of the things that we found in that production model where we had to come to one place? Well, they needed a little break occasionally. Coffee break? What did they do in those coffee breaks? They socialized, right? Um, and so work studies people, and the work studies people, there's a tradition that I like quite a bit, found out that in about a nine-hour office day, so that includes the hour of lunch, about a nine-hour office day, they could identify about five and a half hours of productive work. But about an hour and a half in socialization, you could argue that socialization was an important production lubricant. Right? And between an hour and two hours uh, spent on personal and other social tasks, non-productive social tasks. So in an eight or nine-hour day, you're getting five and a half hours of work. Interestingly enough, you go to 13 hours, if you, go to a if you go to 13 hours of work, you know how much productive work you get? It goes, down. It goes up a little bit. It goes up to six. <laughs> so you can 50% you can increase for a 12%, 50% uh, increase in work for 12. So, um, you know, one of the things that, that um, you always want to make sure is, and if they're working 13 hours, they ain't working 13 hours. Um, no surprise to you, I suspect. And, sorry, did the opposite hold? So if they cut it to a six-hour day, were they getting five and a half? No, if they cut it to six hours a day, they, they saw a, a, a substantial decrease of production, too. So, um, so, so the point is that the, the social aspects of work are somewhat invariant over time, percentage-wise. Uh, but the productive aspects are not. Right? And so the, when you move that model of organization to a virtual world where 
You no longer have access to scarce resources. The question is, so what are they going to do and how are they going to use their time, right? Um, there's no great estimates or, or evaluations of whether people are more productive in the office or less when they do knowledge work. There's no, there is some clear, clear indications in the telecommunicating literature and in the virtual work literature that people who don't have direct supervisory observation are worried for one thing, that they won't get promoted. They're not worried whether they're being a, a good job or not, or whether they're being lax or not. They're just worried that they won't get promoted. So, so that's the biggest concern. So the, the, the point about the work aspect is that these people, um, the evidence of whether they're more or less productive is not clear. So we've done, we, there, there are a number of studies, and this is a space that I, that I will stand in my own work. We've looked at a number of people who are always mobile. We've looked at people who've never not been mobile workers. Um, can you think of a class of people that's always had to go around to do their work? So, oh, there's one. How, any, anything else? Technicians. Technicians. Police officers. Real estate agents. Uh, faculty. Turns out that faculty are very mobile. Um, uh, how about school teachers? Are they mobile workers or not? Well, it depends because in an awful lot of schools, those people do not have a home classroom. Right? They may be located in one building but are never allowed close to a particular set of assets. They are always moving around. Right. So there's been a number of studies in education between those who have a fixed classroom location and a mobile classroom location, and they suffer terribly for having to move around. Well, yeah, this man over here mentioned the fact in, in the context of his, it was your daughter studying, is that correct? So, so let's go back to the, um, let's go back and make a, um, and I'm, I'm making an analogy between um, the work that's done in an office or in a production environment and the work that's done in, a, in an environment of your own choosing. So we know that in a production environment, there's a lot of other people who are about doing something similar to you. So we can actually monitor their time on task. You can actually just, it's, a, it's essentially a simple time and motion study. How long are you spending on a particular task? All right, so. Also, doing something else at the same time, what do you measure? Right, well, so first is, is just time on task. The second is how many tasks are you trying to accomplish, right? So the time on task questions, so the cognitive psychologists have looked at some of these things. The work, uh, labor sociologists have looked at some of these things. Um, so the time on task, I just, I'm going to ask you, so if I, if I separate out into three groups of people, mechanics, we study mechanics a lot because they're very visible, they do airplane repairs and stuff like that. They're, they're easy to find and they're unionized so we can actually, we can, we can actually study them fairly easily. So, um, the, the fruit fly of production work. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, yeah, so we, we can look at them. We can look at traditional office workers, and for a long time, traditional office work was typically administrative assistants, typists, but more recently, it's been knowledge workers. We can look at them, right? And we can look at managers. Managers get a lot of attention because, oddly enough, managers spend money on research, so, we, so they actually get studied a lot. <laughs> See how that works? Um, so we look at those three. So any idea how long a time on task for any of those categories is? Get a sense. So manager, about eight minutes. They spend about eight minutes on a task, right? That's on a, that's that, and, and their task switching is almost always interrupt driven. They do not choose to move from task to task. They are driven by interrupt, all right? Office worker, um, I'll separate it out. Typically, the, the, cl the clerical office work or kind of a knowledge work, about two minutes. Phone call, email, office stopping by, breakdown in something, about two minutes. So actually, managers can focus better than office workers, and that's a sad, kind of an observation. How about a mechanic? Typical mechanic? 
Uh, about 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. They tend to take their own breaks. They tend to more commonly regulate. They're less interrupt-driven, right? They're more, they're more choice-driven. Um, and the point here is that w when we look at task distribution in a day of what people do, um, most of the tasks and knowledge work are driven by externalities, somebody else contacting you, right? So let's go back to where you are in the, you were at Barnes & Noble? Somebody was. Somebody was. All right, so uh, uh, somebody's at Barnes & Noble, but what do they do? What are the, what's the first thing you see that person do? Okay, second thing then, jeez. They pop open their laptop. What do they connect to? Wireless. What's that get, get them access to? The web and email. Now, are they really away? They're at work again, aren't they? Right, they're at work in a more pleasant surrounding, perhaps. Smells like coffee and not like industrial cleaner, all right? Um, but they're still getting interrupted. So the question, that, and your question is very valid, are they, are they more or less productive, or are they just more or less happy, right? We don't know. We really don't know. Distraction's a great issue, and somebody else in the question, yeah, so let's go back to the distraction in a second, but let me see this other question. All right, so distraction is an interesting problem. So do you know where the number, you know those, have you, anybody been to one of those food sites where you get the, the, um, the uh, uh, recipe from, for dinner. Do you know what the number one time for getting a recipe, hitting that web website is? It's between 3.30 and 4.30 East Coast time in the United States. So here's a question, and you can go and look at it most, if you go and look at the logs of where people are during the day on the internet, distraction is not a location issue, right? It's an opportunity issue. Now, most, most organizations are trusting knowledge workers to focus on knowledge work. And they're assuming there's a little social loss time, right? So whether they're distracted at Barnes & Noble or distracted in a work environment is, is kind of a non sequitur to me. They're going to be distracted where they choose to be distracted, right? Yeah, it's whether how far they have to walk for coffee and what quality coffee they get when they walk to it. Um, that's really the question. And so the, the problem about mobile work really is we're comparing it to a thing we don't have a lot of data on. Uh, there's still distraction. There's still unhappiness. There's, there's still interruption. So mobile work is about the location and access to resources, and, it's, and, and we're getting to, it's a, it's, so it's not a production question, is what I'm trying to get to. The mobile access is not a production question right now. Oh, I'm sorry, you had a question over there, I'm sorry. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the flip side of work, and that's uh, the role of technology in, in our leisure time. Ah, work-life balance. So I'll do my New Hampshire story, and then I'll, I'll go back to this concept of where work happens. So my New Hampshire story is we grew, I, I, I lived there for a number of years and actually tried to get a faculty job um, near where my wife had one and um, was unsuccessful, so, you know. But I remember driving around trying to do uh, some research work. I was on a soft money. I was trying to drive around. And I remember driving around. Uh, we lived in a town called Ashland, which is on Little Squam Lake right there by. Oh, yeah. yeah, driving around all through the northern part of Little Squam and Squam Lake looking for Wi-Fi connectivity so I could upload stuff to send it back to where I was working. And... And finding some little, you know, one of these uh, traditional New Hampshire little teeny boxes that look like one, one car garages with a window and a door, summer cottage kind of things. And they had Wi-Fi. And I remember sitting in the snow, this whole thing closed down, no light on there, but the Wi-Fi was running in a car idling, thinking, and I was saying, this is Steve, this is a ski vacation, we're on a ski vacation, we're a ski vacation. And so, yeah, so very... The, and the point is, in the production model of the world, where we had to go to physical resources, the nice thing was you could leave it. 
right? So we're not sure if we're more or less productive being there or not, but we do know one thing. We could walk away and know we were no longer at work, right? That causes, that barrier causes some decisions of, that people make, both about how they manage and about how they work. If I can only work in certain places, I have to be working there. I got to get stuff done. I want to produce, right? So, so the movement away from having a fixed location for work puts more pressure on the worker to make decisions. It's an interesting problem about self-management. Let's go back to who interrupts whom in a knowledge work. Where does the interruption come in knowledge work? From somebody else. So you put more pressure on a person to make their own decisions, but their work is driven by interruptions by others. It's a kind of a conflict of interest. Do you see the, that's a nuanced point. I don't know if I'm making it well. But we expect people to manage themselves in knowledge work but most of what they do in knowledge work is driven by others' interruptions. Does that, does that make sense? That's a kind of a sl slight point, but it's, a, it's an important distinction to make, which is more pressure on them to do the work, less control over the work they do, because it's driven by others. Does that make sense? Somebody in the back had a, qu a question here, and then I'll come over here. Right. Well, it's an interesting problem that we've, 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 we've made a structural decision about how we organize work into an individual decision about where we do it. So it's an interesting relationship. Right. I, I think there are people who are very good at getting away from work. Um, I'm just not one of them. Uh, <laughs> but it's a good point, and I think that it raises a, a philosophical issue about where should work be done. And, and I'd like to, I'm kind of hoping we'll end up on that, but I want to get some questions over here. So I guess I got three. Oh, go over here first. Okay. And the point you're making is that the. Right. Well, the way that we handle interaction is not good or bad, it's different. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that once I read the newspaper, I can't hear my kids talking to me, right? Huh? Um, as opposed to, say, if, if you look at some of the, the literature, as you point out, that shows that uh, uh, teenagers right now are able to, and Susan McHale has, has pointed to some of this stuff in her work over in HDFS, kids can start off a phone call on a cell phone, uh, hang up from the cell phone as they approach each other on the street, carry on that conversation face-to-face -face for a while, separate again, text a little bit, and then email each other in between. And so they're multi what we're, we're seeing is four different media, same thread of conversation. Yeah, but they may be talking to other people along the way, but they kept that track. So they're able to keep track of much more uh, of a thread of conversation argument, where again, where my grandmother and my mother had to start the conversation and close the conversation just like a letter. So again, the communicative practices were driven partly by media and partly by social norms. The fact one is good or bad is not where I'm trying to go. It's just that we think about it differently. The other point I want to make is that if, if the people now are growing up better able to handle interruptions, whereas we were not as able to handle interruption, if you make that argument, I'm not making it, just saying perhaps the interruptive wherever you are thing actually works better for them. We don't know that. We just don't have the, the data on that. We just don't know. We do know that interruption drives knowledge work not location. We, we know that workplace interruption drives knowledge, knowledge work. Yeah. Okay, so, that's, uh, so we'll go back to the production model of work, says that work the production model should dominate work. But we find a lot of social value in going to work. We laugh with others, we joke. Uh, that hour and a half or so of socialization on top of the five and a half hours, a lot of that is you're walking down the hallway on the way to a meeting together and you're talking partly about what's going to go on in the meeting and partly about your kids and family. And so the social activities of work are very bound up uh, up until the 50s and 60s, most people's social life and their work life were tightly tied together. 
you know, when people said I'm an IBM or I'm a GM person, their friends were also IBM and GM people. Right? Law firms are a little bit like this, where the law firm, and, and uh, any medical doctors here? See, they don't travel alone, they travel in groups. Um, <laughs> meta, the medical profession is very like this because they have a kind of an interesting job. Police officers like this, there's the institutional pressures of that work make them travel together, right? So they, but most of us don't socialize as much where we work, right? And so the separation of that social inactivity, um, and it's not quite the brainstorming thing, the separation of social activity from production activity is more and more common. You, you're going far, you, know, you don't get together after work as often because you're distributed so far. There's a, but the, so the argument that brainstorming has to happen in face-to-face, -face, that's the primary argument there, right? That it can't happen other ways. That's a claim to a certain kind of, of interaction that, we, again, we don't have a lot of data if that's correct or not. There's a lot of data that says, by the way, if you don't know the gender of the person you're interacting with and you don't have power and status symbols from them, you're more likely to get equal play and that brainstorming activities tend to disfavor females over males and tend to disfavor non-Northern European white males over others. So the, actually the distribution to electronic means actually possibly raises creativity. Right? The, the, I want to make both points. One, we're, we're making a kind of a claim about a model we don't know. And two, that a lot of the social activities that this presupposes may not be done at work right now anyway, or less and less. Right? Another thing, is, you've heard of the term bowling alone. Have anybody heard the term bowling alone? Bowling alone? There's a book by Robert Putnam, which is better read as an article, because the book is 10 times the length, but not 10 times the value. Um, the book is called Bowling Alone, and its argument is there are more and more people bowling in this country than ever before, but, but the number of people in bowling leagues has dropped way down, so people must be bowling alone. It's about the lack of civic engagement. And he says, well, there's a couple of causes to this, but one of them is that people are busy not being with the people they work with. They're finding their social lives other places. Yeah. Right. So, so the task switching stuff is what you're talking about. The cognitive, I'm not a cognitive scientist, and I don't play one, and I haven't stated it in the Holiday and Express. <laughs> um, but the task switching literature shows that a small break in a task is a cognitive load, that you have to actually put one task down and pick one task up. So we do know that task switching is very expensive. That's why they try not to get combat air pilots to do a lot of task switching because a plane falls out of the sky and that's very expensive, possibly damaging. Uh, that's why they don't want you to do it and talking on the cell phone when you're driving a car, the task switching thing. It, yeah. So we know that's bad, right? Um, uh, what we don't know is how people manage it very well. Uh, you know, should we control the number of windows you have open? Uh, so that tends to be, again, and Right. right. So how do we handle task switching, by the way, in me mechanical production work before then? How do we handle that when we had to worry about your cognitive attention and it was a drill press you were operating? Because if you forgot about that, you put big holes in your hand and stuff, that hurt. Um, how do we handle it then? Well, there's, yeah, there's all sorts of ways to turn the machine off, but you only did one thing. What did we learn about that? Well, boredom sets in, um, and in fact, expertise fails because boredom wins be over expertise. That's why they had to go to all sorts of uh, task switching activities to keep people from getting so bored, right? Cross-training. So we know that there's a penalty in both directions. What's optimum, we have not all figured out, though in specific circumstances, like piloting, uh, me medical work, some other places, we have figured it out for the high-risk situations or high-cost situations. Most people probably try to do too many things 
Um, I have a machine that's old enough that if I open up too many windows, it crashes and solves me the problem, <laughs> um, which has decided how I've decided to run it. But yeah, there, there are, yeah, the point is that we have different options now of work, and I think that an unhappy workplace is an unhappy workplace no matter how you engage it. Uh, it's still unhappy, yeah. But, and the, and the, point I, the point I'll make is that it, let's, let's begin to imagine that you don't have to go to any work spot, uh, whether you're happy or sad, right? Independent of that, where are you going to get your social value, where are you going to get your socialization, may, may or may not be work, right? Um, and so we've been able to separate that out more. And so you may be unhappy at work, but happy in everything else you do, and you can separate those things out now. So the, the mobility of work, the trend in work here is that we tend to think work more and more of as a production function, not as the entire package. Um, I, I identify very strongly with being a professor, so my ego is tied up with it. That's how I learned to do a bow tie, right? Because uh, nobody else would, you know, only clowns and maitre d's wear them other than a, a academics. Um, so I have, I have attached my identity to this. I socialize a lot with my colleagues. I convinced a couple of them to come. So I've tied those together. Many people can separate those out, right? Uh, that's different than the traditional arrangement of work. And I'm saying when you decide to be more mobile, you can make those decisions more carefully. I don't get any social value out of work. I only get production value. But I get social value out of all my buddies at Barnes & Noble and the fact that I know the barrister there very well and that uh, the, the catalog, li the reference librarian there, the, you know, can always find what I want, right? And I can go and sit at... Um, at um, Wegmans, which is, happens to be one of my favorite non-work workplaces, because there's always food there, <laughs> right? And I see a couple of my colleagues there every time I go. We're all you know, like, it's good to see you, but I'm not talking to you right now. <laughs> we'll talk at 10.20. Um, so there's that, that, that kind of separation of work and place. That's a very important distinction between the traditional mo model of how we manage work, right? Does that make sense? Three general statements about productivity. One is that if you look at white-collar productivity, which I will equate with knowledge work roughly, if you look at white-collar productivity, it's got, since the 50s, it's gone up at about like 1.5%. I'm not an economist. I'm trying to play one here. It's like 1.5% per annum. I'm looking at you, Carlene, to see if it's right in that area. Right. Um, so that's not a huge increase in productivity. It's somewhat of an increase. Uh, if you look at non-farm manufacturing, the productivity increases are substantial based on automation. Right. Uh, if you begin to look at controls on the workplace, which is what you're suggesting, when you begin to look at controls on the workplace, there are, there's very little evidence that controls in the workplace increase productivity. There is a great deal of evidence that it increases dissatisfaction. Right? Great study that was done on consultants. Uh, a lady named Valerie Spittler, who's now at the University of North Florida, she did a study of consultants, and one of the things they found out was the consultants were playing a lot of solitaire. You know, the, uh, right? Now, I was a consultant, and, and I was getting charged out of, I was getting, I was getting paid much less than they were charging for me. Which I always thought it was very noticeable. Um, and, and I know that they are constantly pushing on me for billable hours. And so the question would be, if, if, I, if the experience is, consultants are on billable hours, how are they doing all this solitaire? So the decision at the or company was to remove solitaire from all the machines, right? And you would have thought that they had just turned off power. <laughs> so it turns out that the consultants did three things with solitaire. So they're all stressed out. They've got a client angry. They can't figure stuff out. They don't know what to do. They're just staring at the screen. They flip on solitaire, and they're playing it. It's kind of like a mental break. Right? Now, is that a better mental break than going looking at food TV? I don't know. But they used it. Second of all, they get on a phone call with somebody. Uh-huh. 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 I won! Oh, I'm, uh, <laughs> 
right? Third thing is, oftentimes they would leave it running, because why close it down? Because you, know, you can always switch to it, right? So it, some people would just turn it on in the morning, it would be there all day, and they maybe played four or five times, so it looked like they'd been playing for 13 hours, <laughs> right? So, so I point out the system of measurement is bad. The productive value of it is probably useful because it's a good distraction. And, and three, who knows if it hurt or helped the phone call, right? We just don't have good measures of whether it worked or not. But removing it certainly caused them problems because they no longer had the choice. So the workplace environments that tend to filter and control tend to be unhappy. They tend to be less productive. We do know that. We know that um, there's been a couple of edicts at, at our university uh, that suggest different groups of people aren't allowed on the internet. Right? You know, it's like, for this day, you can't look out your left eye. Um, right. So it's an, in, it's an interesting problem, but what can you, can't you look at it, right? So, so those kind of filtering technologies are very problematic. Uh, schools are dealing with this right now. Libraries have actually won this battle pretty much. But I think it's an interesting question about what should a school allow its students to look at? And, and that's, that's less a technological choice and more of an educational or social choice. So um, I can't answer them all, though I'd like to. The, uh, the, the point, the po I think the point about brainstorming, I think actually it was agreeing with you, that the way that we brainstorm has been typically tied to the medium of the brainstorm face-to-face. -face. And there are different ways to brainstorm now. And, and it doesn't have to be a social environment to brainstorm. It can be a very, um, very different kind of environment. The, the concept of what is socialization and what is community is quite a bit under um, um, discussion. Because, if, you know, one of the reasons that um, uh, there are different ways to think about a community. Is a community of people of like interest or a, or a group of people that are co-located in time and space? And so, you know, the street corner society argument that everybody had to live in row houses close together and you had to figure out a way to get along with these people that you normally wouldn't, right? Uh, that's a different kind of community than a bunch of people who self-segregate into a gated space where they all look very similar to each other, right? And that's different than a bunch of people who look very similar to each other but, but have very different hobbies and so they find part of their socialization not where they are. All those are different forms of community, right? Just the way that, so I'm not really getting into the community side, I'm just saying that when we separate work, the production value of work and the social value of work, we can make more decisions about where we want to socialize and who we want to socialize with. And that's a different space. Up until we separated that, we had to socialize with whom we worked with. We, we, we have more choices on that now. Uh, and when you choose to relocate where you want to work, you can choose to relocate to people you want to socialize with or not. Right? Um, whether you're more or less productive, again, is a question uh, of the task. And I, and I was trying to make the point that the task is not so much an individual choice as, as most knowledge work is interrupt-driven. And so we're making a tougher choice. We are, the relocation of work makes it the choice tougher. Whether it's better or not, I can't tell you. That's, that's where I was headed with that. Um, but those are all good points. What it does is, the other thing it does is when you begin, and this is the point, the gentleman in the back point, when you begin to separate out work, where you do work from what you do, when you begin to relocate work, you have to make a bunch of choices about what it means to work and when you, when you have to work. We have not yet identified how to do that. I have a very good friend who's a consultant who, who charges all his haircuts and most of his clothes to his consultancy. He says, look, I'm 24 hours a day thinking about my job. My hair grows 24 hours a day. So I should just assign my haircut to as a professional expense because otherwise I could be just Tom Hanks and Castaway. Um, the, the other thing he says, my, my and the reason I need clothes is because I can think wherever I have to, but the clothes are only for when I have to go see my client. So they all clothes that I purchase, right, 
So he has made a kind of a set of arrangements that are slightly maybe, the IRS may have a different thought about that, but, um, <laughs> but he goes to bed comfortable every night on this. And, and his question to me is always, where do you do your thinking? Right? Now you own your own business. Are you thinking in your office or are you thinking all the time when you're on vacation? I work out of my home okay. for 10 years. And it's, um, yeah, my wife and I are partners in business. So we, we think about it a lot, but we also are very good at the end of the day. You figured out how to separate. You have to. So I, I will, I'm going to see your hand in the back. I will say, so I spent a number of years studying software developers. Yeah, these are the people that make software. Two comments before I get going. One is on a scale of social needs, there's a concept called the social needs scale. On a scale of social needs, this is a 20-year-old study, so I'm prepared to, to be challenged to have this done again. The only professional industry below programmers in terms of social needs were forest rangers. <laughs> All right. But the problem with so software developers is they have to work together. They, they, no one person can build software on their own anymore, really. So these, so these people, it's not, that they are, they, it's not like they're against socializing. They just don't crave it. They don't need it as much. So I'm studying a small group. They're all kids that are graduated. This is in the late 90s. They graduated from Rochester Institute of Technology, RIT. So they had started a company. They started a company. And they were making software. They actually were doing very well. They were selling only to one company, Microsoft. They were making... They were all millionaires. They're all 27. They'd all, they got a penny every time somebody bought a copy of Office, Microsoft Office. They got a penny. And they were all millionaires. They're doing very well. And so I went to visit them to say, what's your success? And, I, and the room was about half this size. And there were five tables, one in each corner, one across from the door. And there was a big kind of platform table in the middle. And there was a guy sleeping underneath it at the time I was there. He had decided that there's no reason to go home to his apartment. His girlfriend had left him. And so he had moved out. And he, he slept there showered and worked out at the gym and ate takeout food constantly. And so he lived in the office that they had. And I showed up to talk to these people and they're like, we don't talk in here. So they all each came outside to talk with me. Um, because inside these rooms, they all faced away from each other, five co four corners in the back wall. And, and, uh, and so I talked to them. And about 12.45 that day, they all started getting up. Like, well, we decided to go to lunch. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> well, we emailed each other. So there are five people co-located in time and space who did not talk, <laughs> right? Yet they had a very creative product, and they had a, they, such a creative product that they had Microsoft sole-sourced, right? Microsoft actually, after a while, got tired of paying them the licensing fee and bought them out. So now they're all 30-something, and they're doing very, very well, right? And I try to get, remember? Um, <laughs> So my point about the brainstorming is let's, let's be very thoughtful about what it means to brainstorm because we have a model in place that we grew up with that may or may not hold, right? It may or may not hold, and it may or may not be more productive. And if you've ever seen anybody write open source software where there are millions of people all over the world writing it, they don't tend to get together. Actually, they tend to get together every couple of years at this one conference in Las Vegas, but it's not about the software. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so again, I'm, uh, what I'm trying to make a case is the work, where we do work is now separated from where, where we work, which makes some decisions about how we work, and it makes some decisions about what we do for work and who we socialize with. We have separated work out from the total production environment that it used to be. All right? And this, the point that I started off, and I'm, I'm going to come back to now, is so if you look at the software developers and the, and the device providers, they have sensed this perhaps faster than many of the scholars um, and are selling systems and technologies into a space that's much different than the traditional production environment that we think of. I'll leave you two things. Have you heard of the thing called MySpace? Anybody heard of MySpace or YouTube? 
All right. So to, right now, those are kind of a, a couple of college kids in here. Are you on it? No. no. Anybody on? Anybody got a MySpace account here? No, but the, uh, just on that point, Facebook is a much bigger deal for college students. For college students, yeah. I, uh, I picked MySpace because it's more visible. But uh, so anybody on Facebook? No. No, I got it. Yeah. Okay. Couple. Let's imagine now that you've used Facebook all your life, or MySpace, or YouTube, and you go to work. Aren't you going to expect something like that available to you? Mm -hmm. Right? Aren't you going to expect to be able to learn all about who you're working with from their MySpace account? How many of you have Googled somebody to see what they're like? <laughs> How about if you can MySpace them or Facebook them? You can find out who they know, what they like. Mm -hmm. What happens if you know so much more about them than you ever knew before when you had to work with them face to face? In fact, what happens, and the nice thing about the, the lack of Facebook in my life was that the stupid mistakes that I make when I was 17 disappeared. <laughs> yeah, and, and my friends also made stupid mistakes, so they don't talk about them either. What happens if they were digitally recorded and I can remember those things for the rest of my life and you can look them up on the web? That's a very interesting, different kind of workspace. But let's imagine that this kind of infrastructure available to where, who you work with and where you work is available anywhere to anybody. Changes the nature of what you think about work, doesn't it? Because that's also material that's used to think about work. Right? My, my point is the trend to work is that we're gonna, we're, we're, we've separated out what we do for production from who we are, but the digital world is bringing them back together for us. But distributing them used to be located inside the company. Now it's distributed across the community. Right? You have to be, it's a very much more interesting thing. I, I, I don't know if I'll get a chance to answer questions on this. But first, we separated our production from who we are and what we do. And now we're reintegrating them out. But we're integrating them outside the corporate environment, outside the boundary of the work. We're having to make more decisions about who we work with and how we work and where we work. And we're not very good at making those decisions yet. That, but that's OK. We'll figure it out. I mean, we figured out how to work in one place. But you know, anybody who's been a successful academic has figured out how to get away and get back in. Police officers seem to do a very good job of this, if you've noticed. Real estate agents, anybody here a real estate agent? They've, they've done a very good job of figuring out how to, how to do that, right? So there's a lot of examples out there of how people figure out how to do mobile work, distributed work. Um, I, I'm getting close to the end of time because people are. So thank you very much. <laughs>